everyone. This is Robin Sills from St. Mary's Hospital, Trinity Health of New England. I hope everyone is having a great evening. It's getting chilly. We're preparing for just a little bit of a dusting, I think, on Thursday. We're getting ready. It's starting, Johnny. It's starting. The weather is definitely starting to turn. Um, I wanted to... um, Thank everyone. I apologize. Last our last program, we ended up running a tape. Um, I had a conflict um, with something that I had to be at um, for a, a physician um, event. So I apologize. There was a conflict there. Last minute, we had to put a tape on. But we are going to be live and in person for this entire month. So we'll definitely have a full month of programming for you. We are going to continue on with the conversations that we had last month regarding women's health. Um, I think that you know. Last Last month, we talked a lot about um, breast cancer because it was Breast Cancer Awareness Month. And I let everyone know that we've started a new program called the Women's Concierge Program. And with that, we wanted to focus bit, a bit on women's services in general because of that program. You know, I read an article just a few days ago from the Journal of Women's Health, and it's talking about a national demand for women's health care. The forecast is to grow by 6% by the year 2020, so just by next year. Most of 81% will be OBGYN and related services. And why is that? Well, there's definitely a change in the Affordable Care Act, so more and more women are, are seeking that care. There is a growth in our population and the demand for that care within a certain generation. So I thought what we do tonight is we've invited one of our newer OBGYNs, Dr. Meredith Carbone. Hi, Doc. Hey there. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Doing well. So Dr. Carbone, I'll just do a little bit of a bio on her. She um, is a board-certified OBGYN, and she joined St. Mary's Hospital and Trinity Health of New England Medical Group just this past year, um, along with uh, all her other colleagues at Naugatuck Valley Women's Health Specialist, um, Dr. Carbone um, is in our Middlebury and our Waterbury location. She received her medical degree from the University of New England College of Osteopathic Medicine, which I definitely want to talk to a bit. She conducted her residency at Michigan State University, um, Spectrum Health in Grand Rapids, and she attained her BS in general science with a minor in neuroscience at Penn State. That is quite an impressive resume. (laughs) So, Doc, what made you choose us? What made you come down to the uh, greater Waterbury area? Um, Well, I first, I had a residency, I was practicing in New Hampshire, and my family is in New Jersey and New York, Mm -hmm. as is my husband. So we were looking to get a little bit closer, and um, when I interviewed with Nagatech Valley, it just seemed like the right combination of uh, partners and people and like a really great place to be. And so far, that's that's been the case. We are so excited to have you. I, I know when I first met with you, I thought, oh, my gosh, if there was any ever a physician that was a perfect fit for the greater Waterbury market and our surrounding towns, it was it's definitely you. So we're really lucky to have you. And, you know, what do you think about this report? You know, do you too see within your practices that there is an incredible need for more and more OBGYNs for women's services? Yes, I I really do. And as, um, you know, more and more things are starting to fall under the OBGYN umbrella, um, particularly, you know, the the span of care within obstetrics and pregnancy and postpartum care and then 
some of the general health things that are now starting to become, you know, our responsibility for yeah. checking in with patients about during annual exams. Um, I really think that the need for good women's health care providers who are going to really address all the issues across the lifetime of a woman is a big need. So, you know, it's funny because when you and I talked a bit and we and I want to tell you, I so appreciate you jumping in because we had a lot of change in programming for this week. So you're like I called you yesterday and you jumped at this. So thank you. Thank you so much. So when we talked yesterday, you know, that leads into the direction we kind of wanted to take with tonight's program, which was your OBGYN care kind of across a lifespan and what that Mm -hmm. and what that really means, you know, and I think that it's so important for women in the audience to understand what does it mean if you're younger or if you have a younger if you have a daughter of a certain age or a granddaughter at a certain age and then what does that mean moving forward and then at the end of our lifespan is as we get older what does that Mm -hmm. mean so let's talk about those early years for OBGYN care what does that constitute like what age bracket is that so everyone's question to me especially uh, moms with teenage girls is what's the what when should I send my daughter to come see you? And it's kind of a different answer depending on where that daughter is in life. Right. Um, the the Pap smear guidelines changed in 2013, and so it used to be that as soon as you were sexually active, you would go to the gynecologist and start getting a Pap smear. That changed, and now nobody needs a Pap smear until they're age 21, regardless of what you're doing, um, sexual intercourse status. And so no one needs a pap smear until they're 21. But I'm still seeing a lot of girls coming in um, in their early teenage years um, for things like irregular periods. Mm. Um, If they've got questions about um, certain symptoms they're having and certainly if um, they're having a problem. Right. So, you know, I kind of, I, I... my answer to those moms is whenever your daughter feels like she's ready to come in and wants to talk to the gynecologist about things. And so there's no, there's no definite age. Right. But definitely by 21. So when, you know, when you meet with those younger girls, the ones that moms want to come in, say they bring a daughter in around 15, sometimes it's not even just the exam. It's almost a conversation, right? Right. You don't right. know. Right. A lot of times it is. Right. Because that, that first exam can be pretty intimidating. Um, And so a lot of times that's not even what we start with. We just start with the conversation about healthy behaviors. Um, You know, in younger years when you're finishing school, we focus on preventing pregnancy until they're ready. Um, Talking about safe behaviors. Um, Certainly talking about vaccines. Right. Especially the HPV vaccine. And so what do you recommend with that? Let's talk a little bit about that because the HPV mm-hmm. vaccine is, you know, my daughter never had it because it wasn't around. She's 37. So, okay. you know, it's definitely very new. And and it's and it, I think for moms, especially moms that, you know, that are, are having their children, you know, now at 35 and stuff, they, they mm-hmm. and my daughter have, just had a daughter at 37, you know, she doesn't know a lot about this. And so, you know, because it wasn't something she did. So right. let's talk about it a bit. So the HPV vaccine is a, a three series vaccine. Um, you get three different injections. And the purpose of it is to prevent transmission of the human papilloma virus. And the human papillomavirus is what causes, in females, cervical cancer and genital warts. Hmm. 
And those are things that are transmitted sexually. Um, and that is the whole purpose of doing pap smears is to screen for cervical cancer and HPV. Right. So my recommendation in my female population is that anyone who is in the age bracket that can receive the, the vaccine do so and receive the entire series so that they're increasing their chances of preventing HPV. So a couple of questions. So as a, sure. so as a grandmother, mm-hmm. <laughs> as a grandmother, so I, I think, so are there any risks to that? Generally, no. Okay. So there's nothing that in the studies that we've seen since we've been, now when did they start doing this? When did they start giving this out? Age so they can, you can start getting it at age twelve. No, but when did um, when did they start with this? How long ago? How long has it been out? Oh, this. I mean, this started in the early two thousands. All right. Started giving this to patients. So and you, at that time, yeah. I'm sorry. Go ahead. So you would think that we may see things now with those kids if there were going to be any side effects. Correct. Right. Correct, and we know with any vaccine, there's always the risk of a little bit of a local inflammation wherever it's given on the body. Right. Um, and that's something that I, um, you know, always let patients know could happen. And then, of course, if you're allergic to any of the components of the vaccine. Right. And, you know, with the, so. and with, and I guess the conversation, it's, it's hard because you start giving the shot at 12 and a 12 year old, you've got to start, then you've got to start that other conversation. Right. Right. Then you got to do the typical birds and the bees conversation with them when you're starting. So I think it pushes. So do moms look to you for guidance with that once they start talking about this this um, vaccine? And and are they getting it from the pediatricians, too? Are the pediatricians giving it out? Yes, it's definitely a conversation that the pediatricians are having. Okay. I think the tendency of most parents is to hold off on giving the vaccine because they are afraid to have that conversation. (laughs) Isn't that something? Um, about the birds and the bees. Yeah. And, you know, what are we, why are we giving this to you? What are we protecting you from? And so that's a pretty common um, hesitation with getting their child vaccinated. Um, usually by the later teenage years, they're not so hesitant anymore, especially because girls are approaching the age where they may start to consider becoming sexually active and then it's more right. pertinent. And then right. they start, and then especially when they start bringing the boyfriends home, and then you're like, uh oh, right, right. We should have had that conversation definitely a little sooner. Mm-hmm. And you know, I, you would think that too. You know, as the girl starts with you know menstruating, that that's when the conversation starts. So, does right. if you give it when they're twelve, do they have they had to have a cycle, or started with their no. periods? No. Okay. No. No, um, and then you can give it up to, so the recommendation just changed. So before this, before earlier this year, you would give the vaccine up to age 26. Okay. And then after that, patients were not eligible for the vaccine. Um, The FDA has increased that age range into the 40s now, except insurance companies haven't yet caught up to the Into the 40s, really? Correct. Wow. Mm -hmm. Wow. Isn't that, that is so interesting. Why is that, yeah. do you think? I think they realize that at this, that the protection that it affords people can, can go longer. So the, the thinking, I think, was that initially HPV was a disease uh, that you would, or a virus that you would catch at a younger age. And right. so any impact it was going to have um, on making changes in the cervix um, was in the earlier 20s 
maybe into the later 30s. Now I think they're seeing that there's benefit to um, administering it into a later age. Is there also an injection for young men too? Yes, boys can get it as well. So, so will boys? So it's more recommended for the younger for the the for the female population versus the male, or or at the same level. Ideally, you'd recommend it at the same level, okay. especially as a pediatrician. Now, I only work with the female population. Absolutely. So in my mind, but um, giving it to young men also prevents the, yeah. the transmission sure. of the virus to women um, during intercourse. So, in it, unfortunately, women and cervical cancer is more prevalent than men and right. the penile cancer that it could Right. Uh, that HPV can cause in that population. So definitely for women. And then, of course, you know, we'd like the young men vaccinated as well. You know, and then, you know, the other part to my to my fear, as I said to you, I had a couple of questions in regards to this way as a mm-hmm. grandparent. You know, the one thing you think about, too, is this isn't a sign for permission. Right. You know, and I think that's, that's parents' biggest concern with giving it is it yeah. are they saying that it's okay to become sex active now right, that you have right. the vaccine or to be unprotected right right um, yeah that's a tough line it's a tough road to cross it's it definitely is. a tough it road is. to cross but i think education of that population is huge no mm-hmm. side effects, Johnny. My producer is asking side effects. You weren't paying attention, Johnny. Uh, <laughs> producer said, any side effects? Because he has a new granddaughter. See, so he's prepping uh, He's prepping for all these things. Um, the other piece that I want to talk about is, you know, you mentioned the mm-hmm. pap smear starting at age 21. How yeah. often do you recommend women get the pap smear at, at the age of, you know, is there a certain time, you know, do they go every year, every other year? There is. This is a common question. And again, when, when the recommendation changed in 2013 that you start your pap smears at age 21, the recommendations also change for how frequent you get a pap smear. So most of us um, grew up with the, you go every year to the gynecologist for your pelvic exam and your pap smear. Hmm. Now, if you are between the age of 21 and 30, you get your pap smear every three years. Really? Yeah. Sure, I could have saved a lot of pap smears. <laughs> now you do this. <laughs> then it changes once you're above the age of 30. Yeah. As long as you're testing for HPV with the pap smear, it's then every five years. Now, okay, so you have to do that test. It has to be on there, right? So you have to recommend yeah. it. So you have to order it. It's the same test, but you have to order it. So you have to order the pap smear with the HPV test. With the HPV. So what is your, so you do it every five years. If someone is, um, is there a population that you would do that more frequently in? I know that's a loaded question. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And someone with, so if at any point you have an abnormal pap smear, then you would, then you would have more frequent screening with right. additional pap smears un- until they were normal again. Until they were normal um, again. Okay. Yes. Um, also in the immunosuppressed population, so people on immunosuppressant uh, medications or who are HIV positive, um, they are at a greater risk of cervical cancer oh. and 
for not clearing HPV right. if they have it. Right. So therefore, that population would have more frequent screening as well. So our next population, and mm-hmm. you know, I, I, I would kind of think of this, so maybe after the age of 21, like 22 to maybe mid-40s, does that sound about right? Sure. Yeah. Your, your next grouping, and, and maybe those are the women in that in that category that are starting to do that family planning type of yes. uh, right. What you know, looking at that's mm-hmm. probably the next stage. And what comes into play with that group? So important things with that group are going to always be um, prenatal vitamins, folic acid, because mm-hmm. this is the reproductive um, age group of women. Even if they're not pregnant. Correct, or if they're not doing something to prevent pregnancy. Okay, okay. And why folic acid? Folic acid is important for preventing spinal cord defects or neural tube defects. So um, important in helping proper closure of the spinal cord um, in a developing baby. So is that what they refer to as spina bifida? Yes. Okay. You know... It's funny, I, I've never, I, I don't think I've ever come across anyone that I know. Has it, how frequent is that? Do you see that? Uh, for spina bifida? Yeah. It's not very frequent. Um, certainly if a uh, patient is deficient in folic acid yeah. um, or is a smoker in particular, oh. um, they're at higher risk of having a baby born with spina bifida. Um, it's not very common. Uh, I've maybe seen it once in two, two, my two years of, of practice after residency. Um, but can be pretty devastating yeah. to, to find out if that's, if that's affecting your baby. So you find that out usually during an ultrasound when, with the baby, yes. with the mom, and yes. it's, it's, the, it's the spinal, it's, not, it's a opening where it's not connecting, right? Correct. The, whole, the, the, the back of the baby does not form properly over mm. the spinal cord, and then some of the spinal cord itself can be exposed. And there's different levels of it too, right? Correct. Correct. So it can be as simple as a, a, um, a really small column, um, a really small defect in the bottom of the spine that can be easily closed without any um, developmental problem in the, in the baby. Wow. All the way up to a really, a very large part of the spinal cord being present on the outside of the body that may or may not be able to be closed surgically and could lead to some developmental problems. Wow. Um, and that can happen at the bottom of the spinal cord and it can happen at um, the top of the spinal cord where it's connecting to the brain. And wow. that would that we refer to as anencephaly. Wow. You know, I remember learning about a lot of this, you know, of course, way back in nursing school. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's amazing to me, a simple thing like folic acid. How much does that reduce your risk? Um, I couldn't give you a specific number yeah. on that. Um, yeah. it's, just, it's just that we know that being deficient in folic acid is a, is a big risk factor for yeah. having spina bifida. Is it a genetic thing, too? With not generally, no. Not generally. Mm-hmm. And what about a woman who is, and I, I want to stay in this age group, but, you know, since we're on this, I just want to address it. Someone that's a little older that gets pregnant mm-hmm. that isn't on folic acid now routinely, does would that increase her risk? Um, no more than someone who was, who was young, a younger age. Okay. Okay. 
So everyone kind of has the same baseline risk. There right. are a few medications. Um, there's typically um, seizure medications that make you deficient in folic uh, acid. And okay. So those patients, we actually recommend a little bit extra. So now what... what the, so what okay. else do we do for this population within this age group for the family planning years? So this population is also, it's important that they're coming for their regular pap smears. Mm-hmm. Um, it's important that we're um, discussing nutrition and exercise so that um, we're going into pregnancy and family planning at a healthy weight to prevent some of the um, complications of pregnancy like gestational diabetes or gestational hypertension. Right. Um, you know, closer to 40, we start to talk about mammograms, and that's that, you know, I think that's probably coming in a little bit later of our discussion to go over that. <laughs> yep. For sure. So as you you know, it's interesting to me because you really try to prepare the woman's body at this mm-hmm. point in time that for those years of family planning that they have safe, healthy pregnancies. And, you know, I don't think women think about that before they get pregnant to really prepare their body. Just the way we prepare for anything else that we do in life, whether, right. it, you know, whether it's a holiday, because those are coming up, you know, preparing what mm-hmm. you're going to cook for the, the holiday and your holiday shopping and all that. But it's really preparing your body to be ready to handle this large event. Yeah, it is. It's, it's a big change. Are you finding now that the millennials that you're seeing are more in tune to that? I think so. And and they're really coming with lots of questions as to what they could be doing to um, get prepared or better their nutrition or, you know, what's safe to do leading up to trying to get pregnant. And so they're really trying to be well-informed going into it. Are you finding, what are you finding in regards to the age group of women that you're currently, that you've been, you've seen over over your years, I mean, that are, that are starting families, you know, the perception, I think, for us, um, for my generation, which is the baby boomers, <laughs> to say, but us baby boomers, perception for us is, is that um, our gen, our, the generations are starting later. They're, they're waiting till they do everything. Are you seeing that? I am. I think I think it, the average age is probably 29, 30, 31, right around the, the beginning of the 30s that people are start looking to start their families. I think they are um, getting through their education, um, traveling more, um, you know, waiting a little bit longer to get married, and then spending that time kind of having some life experiences then before choosing to, to begin. Um, starting a family. And so, um, yeah, I would say the typical age, I'm seeing people who are um, coming in to talk about getting pregnant and then becoming pregnant is in the early 30s. Yeah. I mean, that's when my daughter started. And, you know, I was chomping at the bit to be a grandmother. And now Mm -hmm. I'm waiting for my son and his wife to do it. Now my daughter has three because once they have them, they're like, okay, (laughs) <laughs> we got to get yeah. this done because we don't yeah. want to wait any longer, which right. is fun for me. Definitely exhausting, but, you know, a lot of fun. But when they do that, they do run to risks, too, right, of, of getting pregnant easier. Correct. So um, with every year, your risk of or your fertility declines a little bit, right? Mm-hmm a sharp decline kind of happening after the age of 35. 
So starting in that, you know, depending on how many children you want or are planning for, starting in your early 30s, um, you know, adds a little bit more risk. And certainly after age 35, your risk of miscarriage with each pregnancy um, increases as well, which, you know, is not something people like to hear, but no. it's the truth. But it's reality. You know, it's reality. Yeah. And then, you know, then women do talk, you know, and then you have those women that, you you know, definitely have definitely more trouble getting pregnant and you end up working with infertility. And then we have the multiple Correct. births and all the issues that go with that. So there's so there's so much. And now, you know, on TV, they have all these shows with these multiple birth children. <laughs> And it's, it's yeah. you know, it's amazing. I look at them and I'm like, oh, my goodness. You know, they're doing it, but it's just a lot. And not everybody can do that or afford to do that. Right. Hence why they have TV shows to pay for yeah. that. <laughs> but, yeah, you know, I, I I see these families starting older and it's a life change for them. You know, we had our kids in our 20s. So for us, it was like you just they, you kind of grew up with them. And so there's mm-hmm. there's positives, I think, and negatives. But I'm sure that and I saw it with my own daughter that when they have them a little bit later, the problem is, is a total life change for them. They have to stop right. all that they were doing instead of packing the baby up and just going, because that's what we did. <laughs> we just took okay. them with us. <laughs> so it's just a little different. So the next, we're going to take a two-minute break for that we need to, too, because we have to okay. do that, keep everybody happy. So, And then um, our next um, phase is that perimenopausal sure. into menopause. Yeah. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everyone. This is Robin Sills from St. Mary's Hospital, Trinity Health of New England, and we are medically speaking tonight with Dr. Meredith Carbone, OBGYN with Naugatuck Valley Women's Health Specialist and new to the Trinity Health of New England Medical Group, their entire practice. So welcome, Doc. Thanks again, Robin. Oh, you're welcome. You're welcome. I'm so glad that... um, I was thinking to myself, oh, I wonder if she stepped away for a minute and then I'll have silent air on the phone. So I'm glad you were still. I had that happen one time. A doc ran to go get a drink and then he came back. He's like, oh, I'm sorry. (laughs) Thought I had more time. (laughs) So when um, we initially started the program, we're talking about um, women's health and we're talking about it through the generations because there's different needs for every generation. And we do have a very strong focus at uh, St. Mary's Hospital and training. Health of New England Medical Group on women's health, and we want to make sure that everyone in our audience is aware all the services that we have, and our OBGYN team is growing by leaps and bounds because of the need. So we started our conversation with the early years, and then talked a bit about those family planning years, and now maybe we're going to be focusing on that perimenopausal or starting menopause into menopause. That's fun. That's, yes. that, that's the challenging part of your practice, I'm sure. It is, because it's different for everyone. Yeah. So what So what would you constitute those years? I mean, I, I look at it, you know, to like mid-40s through mid-50s. It's like a 10-year span or so, or is it longer? Yeah. No, that's about accurate. I mean, the average age of menopause is 52. Okay. Um, some women, and that doesn't mean that's ex- that's when the symptoms start. That means that's when you're truly in menopause. So perimenopause is kind of a collection of symptoms and changes and 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 different things that can start 
before you're actually truly in menopause. And that you're right, it's it's, it's in the 40s and can continue even into the mid late 50s, um, depending on when menopause truly hits for a person. And what is some of the symptoms? You know, I have, it's funny, but because I work in a variety, and I'm sure that you see it too, there's a variety of ages that you work with, right, in in, in our industry. And so my colleagues are all varied varied ages. I happen to be Mm -hmm. the older one of the bunch, so I've done all this stuff. So they'll say to me, oh my gosh, I think I'm going through menopause, and they're like 40, Five, and I'll say to them, well, you may be in perimenopausal. That's really right. different. So maybe what are right. some of those signs and symptoms that women are noticing in that age that would make you think? So their periods tend to get irregular or even heavier um, than they were before. I'll have a lot of people come in and say, why is this happening? I'm, I'm older. They should be getting lighter. And in that perimenopausal period, the, the, the menses can be heavier, it can be more irregular, it can go away for a couple months, it can come back for a few months and then disappear again. So they'll see those irregularities and those changes. And then of course everyone talks about hot flashes in menopause (laughs) and night sweats. And that's definitely the most common symptom. Um, The other thing that women tend to notice is they, they can have mood changes and I think it's more common than we think. We don't like to talk about our mood being an issue, uh, but certainly in the, the perimenopause years, um, mood swings and feeling different about things and maybe, you know, even a feeling of not necessarily feeling like yourself all of the time. And right. that's very common. So let's talk a little bit about, let's let's break it down a little bit. So let's talk a little bit about the periods and, and, and the, sorry, Johnny. I got my producer here looking at me like, you're killing me tonight. So let's talk about the periods and talk about that that period that is heavier. What makes, you know, as you start to go through perimenopausal, why does that happen? Why does it get heavier at times? So you start to have anovulatory cycles, which okay. means you're, you're not, you're having a period, but you're not ovulating with that period. And those cycles tend to be heavier bleeding. Okay. But it's not all the time. That's what makes it irregular. Correct. Okay. So women just have to basically get through that period or that that cycle until they get, there's a longer period of time frame between them? Correct. So we consider menopause to be when you've gone for 12 months with no period. Okay. And I've had people where it's gone that long, and then all of a sudden they get one. And that happens sometimes. And then, <laughs> it's it's awful. Little, and then the story gets confusing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's the worst for women. Now, right. as women go through, you know, women talk a lot about fibroid tumor, tumors during this time frame. What causes, mm-hmm. what causes them to form, and when is it appropriate to intervene to do something? So fibroid tumors are just, are just benign um, growth of the muscle of the uterus. Um, and they can happen, really, they can be present at any age. Um, fibroid tumors are, are estrogen-fed. So typically, they're going to be in someone who's not truly menopausal yet. Okay. Um, they're going to be in someone who's premenopausal or perimenopausal because... Hopefully, if any fibroids are present at the time of menopause, now that the estrogen is lower in the body, they're they're 
going to go away right. and not become a problem. But when they are present, time to do something to manage them is if they're becoming symptomatic. Mm. And some of the symptoms that fibroids can cause, they can cause pelvic pain. They can, depending on where they're located in the uterus, because they can be kind of in different spots right. and cause different symptoms. So pelvic pain, uh, heavy bleeding is a big is a, is a common symptom of fibroids. Um, or if they start to get large enough that you can almost see them through the abdomen wow. and it's becoming uncomfortable, right? and then certainly we want to do something about them. But they can come back. Even if you do something about them, you can, and more, you can have them more, right? You can have more. They can. That's oh. correct. So I'll, I'll tell you that, you know, for, for myself, that was definitely an issue, but I chose to write it out. Throughout, mm-hmm. the, throughout the, you know, throughout that phase and period of time, right. and they did, and then once I completed menopause, gone. They went away. But it, yep. Yeah, I'm just, I was stubborn. I was not going to have the ablate. You know, I just didn't. And it, it, they are, they're painful. The the pressure's unbelievable. The bleeding is right. incredible. Mm-hmm. And so, I'm, you know, you can empathize with women that are talking about them. But if you can write it out and be really, really patient, they do go away. Yes, that is true. But, you know, sometimes just based on, I think, our lifestyle, you don't want to be that debilitated because they can be debilitating. Yes, they can be. And and people, you know, it's not uncommon to hear that people are missing school or missing work because of the yeah, symptoms. But at that point, you really have to consider. Yeah. What are we going to do? The, right. And, and what, the you know, do the risks of treating them right. outweigh the, the benefits of avoiding it? So most women will have what they call an ablation. I, you know, I know that that's a big thing out there. Is that something that you would recommend to have them removed, or how do you usually handle them if a woman? Well, well, there's a couple. There's definitely a, there's many options these days for to treat fibroids. There are several different medical options where we can try to treat the fibroids or shrink them without doing surgery. Oh. Um, birth control pills are, you know primarily used for, for contraceptive purposes. Right. However, the hormones in the birth control can sometimes regulate the growth of the fibroids. Mm. Sometimes we'll give them just for that reason. Wow. Um, like I said before, fibers are, uh, fibroids are estrogen dependent. Right. So there are also some medicines that can decrease the amount of estrogen in your body and therefore hopefully decrease the, the estrogen that is feeding the fibroids and shrink them that way. And does um, that, so, you know, we're starting to talk about hormone therapy, which is mm-hmm. you know, definitely another ra- road I wanted to go down. So mm-hmm. as women are going through perimenopausal, are, you know, do you start talking about hormone therapy for those mood swings, for those hot flashes and potentially now, you know, we're talking the um, reduction of the, the um, fibroids? Yes. Yeah. So usually in the, once they've reached true menopause and if the, the, hot flushes and the mood symptoms um, and even some of the vaginal symptoms that come along with with menopause, like dryness um, or painful intercourse, I do start having a discussion about hormone replacement therapy because it can really um, be life-changing to make you feel like you have, you you feel like yourself again. Mm. Um, Estrogen is off, estrogen replacement is a scary phrase for many people. Um, The WHO study that was done some a number of years ago um, really made people scared of estrogen 
Um, but more and more research and looking into the basis of all the studies that were done a long time ago to say, you know, avoid estrogen if you can, are, are finding that the caution that was given to using estrogen is maybe not as intense as it needed to be, um, or it, it was more intense than it needed to be, and that um, estrogen is not all bad. And so I really do have the conversation because I think it can help give people a little piece of their life back if they're mm-hmm. really suffering from those menopausal symptoms. Right, if they're really, really uncomfortable. And what and yes. what about the time frame that you would keep a woman on those? What's what's you know what makes sense? Because it's not a lifetime medication. No, it's not. And the recommendation at this point is to treat them within the first five years of menopause. Right. And no longer um, than 10 years after they've gone through menopause. Right. And so the ideal situation is that you would use the lowest dose that's effective to treat their symptoms. Yeah. And then over time, maybe decrease that dose little by little. Right. In the hopes of, of, of taking it away eventually. Because it, you have to wean them off of it, right? And then do you, do you ever hear from your patients that when you do stop it, then symptoms start to come back? Sometimes yes, sometimes no. Everybody's yeah. a little different. Yeah, it just depends. Yeah. yeah. It's scary, though, for those women. It's like, oh. <laughs> I know. I know they don't want to let go of they it. They <laughs> don't want to let go of it. So, But then comes into play, you know, our next piece to this population of women, and it's the mammogram and what the recommendations are. And we'll get into, you know, what the recommendations are for hormone replacement therapy in this population mm-hmm. because of mammography. So let's talk a little bit about your role in, in getting women to get those mammograms. So I, you know, breast health falls under OBGYN care. Yep. Um, we go with every annual exam. I'm doing a breast exam and then talking about uh, family history of breast cancer to see if there's any genetic risk there. Right. And then talking about mammogram every year. Um, and what is the current, yeah, what's the current, so when do you start women? When are you starting women? So I'm starting women at age 40, mm-hmm. unless they have a relative, a first-degree relative, so a mom or sister, who was diagnosed with breast cancer. Um, and if the age at which their mother or sister was diagnosed with breast right. cancer, the patient needs to start 10 years earlier wow. than that age. So if, let's say my mom was diagnosed at age 44, mm-hmm. I'd be starting my mammograms at age 34, as opposed to 40, which is kind of the standard recommendation. Right. And, you know, we've had our breast surgeons on and, you know, many times talking about, you know, the different types of imaging and, and what's currently out there. And But you as the OBGYNs, because I know I used to work in that field of nursing, the, my poor OBGYNs were always the ones stuck with the report. And you're always stuck with what path do I take next, right, for this patient. And that that must be a really hard conversation for you with those patients. It can be because while I have the report in front of me, I'm not necessarily the person who's going to do anything next. Right, Um, right. It's kind of, I I feel like I'm setting them up and sending them off 
Right. And hoping to hear back good things right. and not bad things. Um, but I, I am always prepared to have the conversation um, and right and stress the importance of it because breast cancer is very common. And it is. It's, it's not always something that we can feel on an exam. Right. Which is why the mammogram is such an important piece. Well, you know, I, you know, last month when we had the breast surgeons on, we were definitely talking about it. it was the gold standard still for sure. It is definitely the gold standard. But now we have um, the tool of the three D mammography, which gives yeah. a much better picture. Mm-hmm. Which is which is incredibly helpful, and they just passed the law in the state of Connecticut for screenings. Now the ultrasound will be covered if they have dense breasts. So for you, that's yeah. going to be helpful. Yes, definitely, because I, I'm seeing that a lot that women are needing, um, you know, after the mammogram, also needing an ultrasound to make sure they can see all of the tissue properly. Right. And that's a, it's funny because I worked with that for a while. The hard thing for, I think for our OBGYNs is, is that you'll have a radiologist that categorizes someone as a two, which means they don't need an ultrasound. And then all of a sudden the following year, they'll have their mammogram or two years later, they'll come back and there'll be a three because density changes in the breast. So it kind of, you, you have to be so you have to really just be so open to reading, you know, that report and understanding, okay, this year they may need it, but in a couple of years from now, they may not. Yes, correct. Which is so confusing for you guys. I know. Well, yes. And I'm, I, I, I'm learning more and more as time goes on because it is a really, it is part of your it is part of the OBGYN field yeah. to know this. Yeah, it that. is. It's it's something that falls on you guys. You know, mm-hmm. it's not necessarily something that you prepared yourselves for, but just the way that the two, they work together. You know, women are coming to you for all of that. And what about yeah. bone density? Is this a time frame that you get bone densities on women too? Um, usually around age 65, if they haven't had one yet, that's when I will order one. Oh, okay. For later on. Okay, yeah, so later, later on. on. Unless a woman has maybe other... Yeah, unless there are other specific risk factors that would make them eligible for it sooner. So because it's 10 of, I don't want to leave out our last generation because this is where I sit. <laughs> so that 55 and older, what is what is in that range for women? What do you, What can they expect? Nothing. Okay, so Johnny can... just said nothing. <laughs> Thanks, Johnny. <laughs> no. no. So 55 and older, there's still a lot to cover. Um, this is the population that I'm, you know, in addition to asking about. So they're still getting pap smears up until age 65. And how often? But how often? Every five? Every five if they have the HPV testing with okay. the pap smear. Okay. And I'm asking them about their mammogram, making sure that's set up. And then I start to talk about the colonoscopy as well. Oh, okay. Now, the colonoscopy is not something I I generally order or get reports. But patients are not always seeing a primary care doctor and an OBGYN. A lot of times they're just seeing the OBGYN. So that is something I'm asking about because... During my exams, everything's all kind of in that same area. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's so yeah. important to have, you know, you mm-hmm. need that spot check, right? Everybody yeah. needs a gatekeeper, or as I call it, the yeah. quarterback for our care. So for women, of course. most times it's my, it's my OBGYN docs. Mm-hmm. 
And so, is this a population, too, that you see, I don't know, and, and maybe it's because I live in that 55 and older, but I notice a lot of women that are widows or men that, you know, are widowers, but they're starting new relationships and I, they need to still be cautious. Correct. <laughs> That's not always happening. Correct. And I get a lot of funny, funny stares when I ask the questions that I ask about yeah. intercourse and concern for STDs and yeah. painful intercourse. And I ask everyone for that reason. You never know what someone's life situation is. Absolutely. And so, yes, I ask. I have all the same questions for everyone. We screen everyone for those things. Um you know, we talk about prevention of osteoporosis, so vitamin D and calcium are extremely important. Um, weight-bearing exercise, not smoking, those are all things that can protect your bones. Right. Because as your estrogen goes down when you're postmenopausal, that's a risk factor for a loss of, of your bone health as well. Right. Do you so, see an increased risk in this population, too, for women, especially that still have their uteruses, maybe of, you know, uterine cancer or ovarian cancer? Yeah, so the the risk of the risk for both of those go up, ovarian cancer and uterine cancer. Um, typically, uterine cancer is something that presents with postmenopausal bleeding. So this, it's a question I'm always asking and making sure that my older patients know if they are having bleeding in the postmenopausal period, they need to call and tell me because we right. need to check it out. Absolutely. Um, and another imp- important point that I make with all of my patients is that even though in this population your pap smear is every five years, it doesn't mean you don't need a pelvic exam every year. Right. You still need the pelvic exam every year, meaning we need to look inside and we need to um, do an exam by hand so that we make sure the ovaries feel normal, the uterus feels like it's a normal size, and that uh, nothing feels out of place. Right. And, and what do do you find women in this generation, too, um, they kind of ignore some of their symptoms because they're, you know, like they have a little bit of pelvic pain or they just, mm-hmm. they just disregard it, but that's concerning. Yes. Yes. And so... And if they have a little bit of, of bleeding, right. it's not really heavy. If it's just spotting, they think, oh, not a big deal, but it is. You know, those, those are things that shouldn't be happening anymore. So we, I encourage my patients to you know, call me in between their annual exams if they're having symptoms that aren't necessarily normal. So when, how old, how, now we had this at the beginning of, the, of our conversation was how young do you start? How old do you stop? The pap smears? Yeah. How old do you stop seeing you? How about seeing a, a GYN? First of all, never, probably. But, I mean, I would say never. <laughs> right, for sure. For sure. But how, yeah, how about when do they stop with the pap smears? The pap smears stop at 65 as long as they've always been normal. Okay. If there's been an abnormal, you need to screen for at least 20, 20 years after that abnormal um, if you've had some cervical dysplasia. So age, so if someone has an abnormal pap smear at age 60, right. that's bad enough that you need to do biopsies and, and do a little more, then you need to keep screening them until they're 80. So I'm going to, which is a little confusing. Absolutely. But I get it, but I definitely get it. And you know, you made a huge point about they still need their pelvic exam. 
Yes. You know, they still need the still public, need the public exam. exam. Because, you know, women that are that are, are definitely viral and you know, they're they're virile and they're they want to live their life, you know, we can catch things early and treat them early. It's right. Why not? Right. I I will tell you that, um, I don't know if you know Dr. Michael Sims, he's in charge of our infectious disease. He's making me crazy because he wants to come on the program. He talks a lot about um, all of our infectious diseases. He was telling me that there's an increase in syphilis in this population. There is. It's unbelievable. He said it's, it's, you would think that not, but they're, they just don't think they're of the age that they need to worry about it. How sad is that? So he wants to come on and do a show. I have yet to figure out how I'm going to do that with him, but we'll figure oh it out. Oh, my goodness. I know. <laughs> we'll figure it out. So we are, believe it or not, at getting to the end here. So if you had to leave the audience with anything, Doc, what would that be? I'd say don't be afraid to call your OBGYN with, with, with your concerns. Um, we're happy to see you. We love taking care of women. We will, if, if you can't, if, Nothing's too awkward for the OBGYN. That's right. You talk to you about everything. Yes, we can handle it all. <laughs> so, and if you want to reach Dr. Carbone, she is at 687 um, Straits Turnpike, um, Suite 2A in Middlebury. She's also at 133 Scoville Street in Waterbury, which is right attached to the hospital. I know you rotate what days you're where, which is great. So we have two locations. There's one phone number. It's 203-575-1811. You can also find her um, information on our website, stmh.org. And if you click on Trinity Health of New England and you click on specialty, you click on our OBGYN team and she will be there. Awesome. So, Dr. Carbone, thank you so much for joining us tonight. I you're know welcome. you did this. You did this for me on a shoestring. So you rock. So, and I know you're accepting new patients. So you welcome new patients. So definitely call yes, if you're absolutely. looking for an incredible doc. Thank you for joining us. I'll talk to you soon. You're welcome. Have a good night. You too. So I want to thank Dr. Park Carbone again for joining us. We are going to continue on Women's Health on our Friday morning program. Um, we will be having one of her colleagues on, uh, Dr. Arena Magadina. She's been with Naugatuck Valley Women's Health Specialist and now, of course, Trinity Health of New England Medical Group um, for a while now. I've known her for the last several years, and she just opened a brand new practice out in our Cheshire location. So we're going to be expanding our conversation with her um, on Friday morning morning at 9.30. So thank you so much, everyone, for joining us. This is Robin Sills, St. Mary's Hospital. Have a great night.